and uh, we're going to make our way, there I am, make our way down to chapter 6. So Ephesians is the book we're going to be in. We are in part 3 of our sermon series, Doing Business with God. Doing Business with God, and I've entitled part 3, today's sermon, The Pattern, The Pattern of Work. Just by way of reminder as to where we've been and where we are going. In part 1, we saw the picture of work. We saw that God created uh, human beings in his image and that God as a worker made us to work. And so it's inherently good and not evil and that it is a part of our DNA. Last week we looked at the pains of work and we saw that though God made us as workers and that he himself is a worker and that when we work we're doing something that is inherently like him, that's not the entire picture. And we saw that when sin entered to the world, it messed up everything, including our work. And we saw some of the inevitable pains that became of that. And then today we're going to see the pattern of work. And the subtitle for today's sermon is How Jesus Redeems Work. That is, what does Jesus do in the life of you and me, the average worker, to redeem both us and our work? So I trust that you're now in Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, then we'll make our way on into chapter 6. So let's pray, and we'll jump right into this sermon and our text this morning. So let's pray once again. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these people. Thank you that they've come to sit under your word Father, we come to your holy word. It's inspired and inerrant, and we believe every word in it, and it's trustworthy, it's reliable, it is uh, applicable and clear, and there's so much for us to learn about our salvation and what you've done to offer eternal life and new life through your Son, and there's so much more. Not only do you redeem us and change us, but you redeem uh, every aspect of our life so that when we come to you and when we come to your Son and trust in him as our Savior and as our Lord, we are born again and every area of our life changes, including how we work. And so help us now to see how your Son not only redeems the worker, but redeems the work so that our work might be done in worship and in praise to you for your glory and for our enjoyment and satisfaction. And so be with us, we pray. Holy Spirit, come and speak through me. Speak through your word that you inspired. May the hearts of the people be soft. May their minds be open. And may our lives be indeed lives of worship because we have come to hear and to apply your word. We ask your grace in this. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and all of the people said, Amen. I ran across an article in the Spokane Review. It's a a local newspaper. And in this local newspaper, it was a short article that listed nine workplace attitudes. Nine workplace attitudes that bosses hate. Nine workplace attitudes that bosses are not so friendly to. And uh, I'll just read them to you and see if uh, you can relate to any of them as a worker or maybe as a boss. The first one, they say, is NMJ, not my job. The second one is NMM, that is, need more money. Number three, WCT, wastes company time. PPP, promises, promises, promises. NMH, needs more help. How about ADC, always complaining and disagreeable. How about CWS, clock watchers syndrome, that's my favorite. TTM, the troublemaker. And finally, SRM, supports rumor mill. Now, certainly these are nine workplace attitudes that uh, bosses hate. The question that I want to begin and kind of shape our sermon, frame our sermon with this morning is this question. What difference 
does or should Jesus make at work? To put it another way is what difference should being a Christian make in how we go about our daily lives, how we do our jobs? Should there be any difference between the way a Christian does his or her work and maybe the way those who are unbelievers do their work? What, what difference, practically speaking, does Jesus make on our work? How does Jesus go about redeeming work? Well, along with helping us to avoid these nine workplace attitudes that we've seen, we're going to see that Jesus does so much more than that. He redeems our work, first of all, by redeeming the worker. If you're looking for structure and you're taking notes, there are two main points. First of all, Jesus redeems our work by starting with redeeming us. He begins by redeeming the worker, and then, once he's redeemed the worker, he goes on to redeem the work itself. That is to practically influence how it is that we go about going to school, going to to our workplace, or working at home, whatever sphere our work may be in. So let's look at the first main part of this sermon, and that is that Jesus redeems the worker. He begins by putting the worker, that is you and I and everybody else in this world, through faith in his son Jesus Christ, he begins by putting the worker back in a a right relationship with God. If you're in the book of Ephesians, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. The book of Ephesians is a wonderful little book. A few years ago, we worked our way through it. So just by way of reminder, uh, the book of Ephesians is written to a church in a city in Asia Minor called Ephesus. Uh, It was a relatively major city, and there was a group of Christians there, and Paul writes to them, and he speaks to a whole slew of things. In the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, he wants them to know how God redeems them. That is the work of Jesus Christ to bring them salvation. We're going to take a look at chapter 2 here in a second, and we're going to see that God begins to redeem us by giving us spiritual blessings through faith in Christ. And then in chapter two, we're gonna see just how exactly is a person, how exactly is a worker like you and me put back into a right relationship with God. He begins with theology. He begins with how do we as sinful people become right with the holy God? But he doesn't stop there. Because what he does then is as you continue to read through the book of Ephesians, starting in chapter four and writing in chapter four, five, and six, he begins to deal with a whole slew of practical areas in which once a person is made right with God, their relationship with God and with Jesus Christ should affect all of these areas. So Paul talks about how should Christians relate to one another in the church. And he talks at length about how we're supposed to be uh, loving it and have unity together. He then talks about our morals. That is, should being a Christian affect our decisions on a daily basis? How should we live our lives in a moral way. He talks about sexual purity. He talks about marriage. How should, being a, how, should, how should being a Christian affect how we relate to our spouses? He even talks to kids. He says, kids, this is how you're supposed to relate to your parents. And then finally, in chapter six, he gets to workers. And he talks about how workers are to be transformed by the good news of the gospel and being made right with God. So that's where we're going. But let's start back in chapter two how Jesus redeems the worker. He puts us back into a right relationship with God. If you remember with me from last week, we saw the pains that sin brought 
to our work. We saw that with sin, Adam and Eve entered into our world, and everybody since, you and me, we sin. We do evil in the sight of God, and we are fallen human beings. And we saw that last week that the entrance of sin into our world greatly affected our work. Do you remember that sermon? I hope you do. It greatly affected our work. It made, first of all, our work harder. That is, it was not as laborious before, but now with sin, our work is harder. It, in, it, it, it infects the very worker ourself, and that's the point I want us to see. It affects us as human beings. It affects our coworkers. It affects our organizations. It makes work futile to some degree. That is, it doesn't last forever. It can lead to oppression, and it can lead to self-centeredness. And so we saw all of these pains that sin brought to our work, but the first thing that we saw out of Genesis chapter 3 is that sin affects us. It affects us on a very personal level. And so when we think about it, how does Jesus go about fixing work? How is Jesus going to redeem work? Well, he has to start with the problem. And the Bible says that the main problem for you and I is not that work is hard or futile or that we use it to oppress people with or that we use it for selfish means. The problem with our work is that it comes from sinful people. The root problem, according to the Bible, is sin. And since sin is ultimately the cause of our problems at work, then God has to go back and he doesn't address the issues of work so much first as addressing the issue of sin in the life of an individual person. And that's exactly what Paul does. He wants them to know as Jesus redeems work, he starts with the worker. He starts with you and me. And so let's read now in Ephesians chapter two. If you have your Bibles or maybe you can look on the screen, how does he do that? How did God redeem these workers in the city of Ephesus? How did he do that? How did he change them? Well, we see uh, three points here. The first thing that we see, not only for the workers there in the city of Ephesus, but for you and I, for workers in schools and in farms and at our jobs. We're all workers here because we're made in the image of God. This is a paradigm. It's a paradigm for how not only he saved these people, but how he saves you and I today. So first of all, we see in verses one through three, first of all, we have to admit our rebellious and condemned state before God. So the gospel is good news, but it begins with bad news. And so Paul begins with this bad news that we are rebellious people and that we have rebelled against a holy God and that therefore we stand rightly so condemned before him. He begins with who these people used to be. And he begins with who you and I are without Christ. Chapter two, verse one. Let's read this together. As for you, he says, as for you, you were, so he's speaking to their former state, and yours and mine as well, apart from Christ. As for you, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient, referring to Satan, All of us, notice the inclusiveness, Paul himself, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, to no exclusion, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And so Paul begins to talk about how me and you can be made right with the holy God, how we can, as a worker, be made right with God. And he says, essentially, God, out of his great love, 
out of his great mercy for us, offers us life instead of death, offers us a renewed relationship with God, offers us just new spiritual life through faith in Christ, who obeyed for us perfectly when we never could, who died in our place, bearing our sins, taking God's wrath for us, and being resurrected from the dead, ensuring forgiveness of sins, eternal life. And we're gonna see that God calls us uh, to be trophies of his grace. But he begins by saying, listen, you need grace. You are fallen. You are not right with God, is what he begins with. So that's the bad news. That's the bad news for every person that has ever lived. We have to admit that. We have to face that. And we have to recognize that we are in need of saving, which gets us to the second part, which is the good news. Not only must we admit our rebellious and condemned state before a holy God, but secondly, we have to recognize what Christ has done for us. There is good news. Though we are fallen, Jesus saves. So let's read that in verses 4 through seven, they had to recognize exactly what God in Christ has done to change that fallen state. Verse four through seven, but, that's a wonderful word, but, you don't have to stay that way, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And so essentially what he says is not only must we recognize that we're fallen and that we're rebellious, but this is what Christ has done for us. He's died in our place. He's taken our sins And so how then do we respond to this? This is good news. We don't have to stay spiritually dead. We don't have to stay under the wrath of a holy God. Christ has borne our sins in our place, but it demands a response. It's not enough simply just to recognize that this is what God has done for humanity. There is a personal responsibility. We have to third, personally trust in what Christ has done for us. It's not enough just to know and to believe it intellectually. There has to be an act of the will. Our hearts have to be changed so that we place our faith and our trust in what Christ has done. And that's exactly what he says in verses eight and nine. Let's read that together. He says, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. So there is an act of faith that we have to take. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so what he wants us to know is that we cannot work for this forgiveness. We can't earn this reconciliation, this right standing before God, but we have to do something in a sense. It's a passive act, And the Bible calls it trust. The Bible calls it faith. The the Bible calls it belief. The Bible calls it accepting. Whichever word you want to use, the Bible says that not only must we understand what Christ has done, but we must personally apply what Christ has done. We must receive this free gift. Did you notice the emphasis? Paul says it twice. He says, not by works. He wants us to know very clearly that we cannot earn this salvation, that we can't earn it. There's nothing that we can do. We can't be good enough, but we simply receive this gift of forgiveness of sins. I liken it to a check that has not been cashed. I don't know if you have ever had 
experience before, but on occasion, uh, when my in-laws come in, and sometimes when my parents come in, they stay for a week or more, and it's wonderful, and they are extremely gracious people, both my parents and my wife's parents, and so what oftentimes will happen is at the end of their stay, they'll leave us a check, and so they'll write us a check, and they'll slip it somewhere so that maybe we don't notice it, and we'll see it later because they don't want us to fight about them giving us money, so occasionally we'll find this check, and it will be written to Trey or Shelley Sheffer for X amount, And in the memo, it will say for groceries and electricity and things like that. And so we get on the phone and we say, Mom, Dad, your guests, you don't have to pay us for this, right? It's okay. You don't. And so we fight a little bit. And inevitably, they win. And so we end up depositing the check. But the, the point of my, my, my illustration is simply this. There, oftentimes, we, Shelly and I kind of debate, well, well, should we check it? They can write it to us, but they're gone. We don't have to deposit it, right? We can, we can one-up them, if you will. We can win this little game. We have the check in our hand, and it's valuable for whatever amount they wrote, but we don't have to put it in our bank account. We can tear it up, or we can you know, store it away, whatever we want. Uh, we don't have to do it, but at what point is that check good to us? At what point is it put into our accounts, so to speak? At what point is that money credited to us? Well, the gift has been given, but what do we have to do? We have to write our name on the back and drive by the, the drive through window if you bank it in a park and give it to the lady and put it in your checking or savings account, right? It has to be personally received. It has to be personally trusted in. And the same, I think, is, is true for what God does for us in Jesus Christ. God, in a sense, has written us a check, and that check is sufficient enough to cover our sins. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, it was sufficient enough for the sins of the entire world, for my sins and for your sins. And so there's this check written to cover our debt that we owe to God, and yet it's not good enough to have that check simply in our pocket, right? It's not good enough to have that check simply uh, staying at our home. What do we have to do? We have to personally receive it. We have to personally put it in our spiritual bank account, so to speak, so that the righteousness of God is credited to us. Now, it's free to us, right? When my mom and dad write that check, it's free. We don't have to do anything. It's, it's unearned. The Bible calls that grace. It's unearned. And if we were to say, let me pay you back for this, it's an offense to the one who gave the gift. And that's what Paul is saying. It's not by works. It's a gift of grace. It's free to us, and yet it cost God much. It cost Jesus coming down to live as a human, and it cost Jesus his very life, did it not? And so grace is free, but it's free to us, but it costs God everything. But we have to deposit it. So I want to ask you this morning, have you received that check? Have you come to the recognition, number one, that you are rebellious towards God, that you are condemned before him, that there's nothing that you could do to earn his righteousness or his favor? And have you recognized that God in Christ has acted to bring you forgiveness of sins and eternal life? And if you've come to that realization in your mind, have you taken that third step? Have you taken that spiritual check and deposited it in your spiritual bank account? Well, if you have, and if you do, like the Ephesians did, then God has a purpose. God doesn't just save us so that we can go to heaven, although that's a wonderful benefit. Why does God redeem us? Why does God redeem us as workers? Well, we see a hint in verse 10. 
He redeems us for the purpose of doing good works. Let's read verse 10 together in chapter 2. He says, For we are God's handiwork. The word there is literally, we are God's master pieces. It's, it's a reference to a wonderful piece of art that an artist has done. We are his handiwork, his craftsmanship, a marvelous piece of art that he's made in Christ. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for what purpose, church? To do good works. To do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, oftentimes, and I'm guilty of this, I think we oftentimes think of these good works. When you become a Christian, God has these good works laid out for you in advance that you should walk in them and do them. But does that, does that include what you do at work? I mean, can you do good works at work? Is that just spiritual good works like coming to church and praying and giving money to the church or helping your neighbor mow their lawn or maybe sharing the gospel with someone or filling somebody's uh, tank of gas up when, the, when, when they're lacking? I mean, all of these things that we consider good works, does that extend to our work? Well, I think the word is certainly general enough that it includes every good work that we may do, including the work that we do at work. So what I want us to see is that, first of all, Jesus redeems us as workers. But he redeems us so that we would do a series of good works because we've been changed by his gospel. And that relates and includes how we do our work, how we go to work tomorrow or this afternoon or whenever it is that you're going to work. So let's move now from seeing how Jesus redeems us as workers to seeing how Jesus redeems our work. Jesus puts us as workers back in right relationship with God, but he also puts our work back into right relationship with God. That is, Jesus affects the way we work. And so if you have your Bibles open, which I hope you still do, turn with me now a little bit ahead to chapter 6. So chapter 3, chapter 4, go to Ephesians chapter 6. As I said, the last half of the book of Romans is very practical. Paul wants these uh, Christians and, and you and I today to know how once we are made right with God, what effect does Jesus have in every area of life, including our work? And he addresses the area of work, I believe, in chapter 6, starting in verse 5, as he talks to slaves, as he talks to slaves in that day. Now, I want to, to speak just very briefly to this because I think oftentimes it's a, a very legitimate question. So you're going to tell me as an employee how to relate to my boss uh, as if I was a slave of him? Wait a minute. I don't know any of you who work for a boss who want to think that you are their slaves. So, so how do we do this? Is, is this fair to do? I would certainly argue that this is fair to do, that we can relate, certainly not one-to-one, certainly not exactly, but we can certainly relate the principles of work that Paul gives to the slaves 2,000 plus years ago and relate it to those of us who do work under some kind of authority. Most of us work within an authority structure. Some of you own businesses. Read on and look at verse 9, and he talks to you and you about how you as employers should deal with those under you. But we're going to focus on verses 1 through 8. That is, how do we, and some of these principles apply to you as well, how do we as workers relate? How do we work? How does Jesus affect our work? So can we do this? Can we say, looking at slaves, does that relate to us? I would say we can for, for a number of reasons, and uh, let me just give you a few of them. First of all, to begin with, when we look at those who did work in that culture, work in particular, and particularly in very affluent cities, like the city of Ephesus certainly would have been, 
most of the work was done not by free persons, but by slaves. Uh, at this time, the Roman, uh, the Roman colonies, uh, the Roman cities, had, a fit, had kind of developed this thing to where if you were rich, it was kind of below you to work. And so you hired your work out, or you bought slaves, and they did your work. So that most of the work done, at least in wealthy cities, were done were done by slaves. And so I think Ephesus fits the bill there. Uh, certainly slavery is very different. Uh, in, in this day, uh, one historian suggests that upwards of one-third to maybe two-thirds of the population of the entire Roman Empire at one point in time or at any point in time were slaves. So Paul's not talking about a minority of people here. He's talking to 66, upward of 66% of the people in that church most likely were slaves. Now, the this, this slavery that we're talking about was very different. Uh, it was almost like an indentured servant kind of a, a setup. So oftentimes, slaves would choose to be slaves. Now, not all the time, but oftentimes you could choose to go into slavery to pay off debt, or oftentimes slaves would become slaves because their standard of living would actually increase. They could do better working as slaves than working as freedmen. And so all of this to say, I think as we look at how Jesus redeems our work, Paul looks at the workers of his day, and they were mostly slaves. And so he's addressing these Christians, and he addresses us as Christian workers today. So how does Jesus, how does Jesus redeem our work? Five points. I think there are five ways in which Jesus redeems our work. Number one, we start at kind of the baseline. Paul says in verse five that we should simply do our jobs. That we should simply do our jobs. Notice he says, slaves obey. That's the thrust of the command there. Slaves obey. Obey your earthly masters with fear and respect. What does it mean to obey? It means to obey. It means when you are told to do something, you do it. That's essentially and simply what it means. Free workers could choose to do whatever work they wanted, and yet these slaves, like most of us who work under an authority structure, we don't choose exactly what we can do all the time, although there is a sense in which we can choose our careers, but when we get jobs, we typically do what our bosses tell us to do. They tell us to go wire that, and we go wire it. They tell us to write this, and we write it. They tell us to go talk to that person, and we go talk to that person. And so the baseline for Christian work is simply doing our jobs. There is a a quote that I came across from a man who worked for the LA Times, and he was known for his wit and humor. And he was talking a a bit offhandedly, uh, humorously, about his work ethic. And he said this, he said, I never liked to drink, to drink coffee on the job. I never liked to drink my coffee on the job because when I'm laying down at my desk, I toss and turn all day long. Well, quite simply, uh, that's not a very good work ethic. But the baseline is we do our jobs. So I want to ask you, do you do what your boss says? Do you do it promptly? Do you do it rightly? Do you take orders well from those over you? I hope you do. Because that's the baseline for Christian work. So not only do we do our jobs, right, but how do we do it? That Doing our jobs addresses what we do as Christian workers. But the second one addresses how we do it, and that is, number two, we respect authority. Paul says, slaves, obey your earthly masters, but how? He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. He gives a couple adjectives to describe how we're supposed to do this. Uh, with respect and 
Fear, excuse me, adverbs, with respect and fear. So this is how we do our jobs. He speaks of an inward attitude. So here's the deal. As workers, we can obey our masters, but how do we do it? Do we do it grumbling? Do we do it begrudgingly? Do we do it out of just because we have to do it? Or what should be the inward attitude of the heart? Well, he says essentially we we do it out of respect. The first word, respect, speaks of an inward attitude of respect for authority. And this word, fear, speaks of the outward manifestation of respect. So not only do we respect him internally, but that respect we have for the authority over us should bubble out of us in our words and in our attitudes and in how we do our work. And so I want to ask you and me, how do you relate to your boss or your bosses or the authorities at your work? Could your attitude in doing your work be described as respectful or fearful? What about when you speak to them? How do you speak to your bosses or your authorities? Maybe a, a harder question is how do you speak about them when they're not there? When you're talking with the guys or the gals around the, around the, the water jug, how do you speak about them? Is it with respectful tone? How's your body language when you receive orders? All of these things, I think, have to do with not only what we do, but how we do our jobs. We respect authority. But thirdly, not only do Christians do our jobs, not only do we do it with respect to authority, but number three, we care about our work. We simply care about our work. This speaks to why we work, the motivation to our work. We care about the work that we do. Paul says, slaves, obey your masters, earthly masters, with fear and respect, and how? With sincerity of heart. He says, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. This speaks to why we do our work. Simply uh, being sincere of heart means this. It means we do it wholeheartedly. It means we do it completely, devoted to the task, being undivided in our effort to the task, as if Jesus were our foreman, as if Jesus were our boss. And we're going to see in a little bit If you're a Christian, he is. But this speaks to the fact that we care about our work. We actually care about it. So we can do our work because we're told we do the work we're supposed to do. We can do it respectfully, but the Bible says for the Christian, we should actually care about what we do. For some of you, it's very easy because you enjoy the work. You, You naturally care about it. But for others of you, sometimes your work, you just don't care about it as much. You're not inclined to do it. Students, Sometimes I hear you say, I don't like school. I don't care about school. If you have been born again and if Christ is your Savior, you can care about, although you may not like history or math, you can care about the work that you do with sincerity of heart. This means that you care not just about the paycheck and not just about the benefits, but for instance, if you're a nurse, It means that you actually care about the people that you're helping to get well. It means if you're a farmer that to some degree you care about the people that you're producing food for or the animals who are going to be fed who then will feed you and I, right? It means if you uh, own your business, you care about the people whose homes or whose yards that you're working in. We care as Christians about the work. So we've addressed what we do. We do our work. We've addressed how we do it with respect to whatever authority we have over us. We've talked about why we do it. We care, actually care about the work. And then number four, Jesus transforms us so that we, we work when nobody is looking. We work when nobody is watching. Verse six, he tells these slaves and, and, and us as Christian workers, obey them. 
Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. This addresses when we work. When we work, not just when the boss's eye is upon us, not just when we know our work is going to be evaluated, not just during a time period so that the boss will give us a promotion or he'll he'll, uh, grant us favors. No, uh, the idea is that we work diligently all of the time as we're supposed to uh, because we want to do it because Christ, as we're going to see Lastly, is our boss. It's him that we're actually working for. And so he says, don't just work hard some of the time and then do minimal work the rest of the time. So how do you go about doing your work when you won't be held accountable for it? When the widgets won't be counted, so to speak, or inspected? When there's not a boss around to to oversee you or maybe when he's in the other part of the building? How do you go about doing your work? Finally, there's one more area that Jesus affects. There's one more way that Jesus intends to, to redeem our work, and it's this last point. We work. We work for Jesus. Uh, who is your boss? Students, when you go to school, who's your boss? Who's your teacher? Uh, who is it? Who do we ultimately work for? If you're a Christian, what we see in verses 7 and 8 is that Jesus is our boss. Verse 7, Paul says, serve wholeheartedly as if, as if, You were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each of you, whatever good they do, whether they are a slave or a free man. So he he says, as you're working, recognize that there's a human authority over you, but that that human authority is really not the ultimate authority. The ultimate authority over you is is Christ, if you're a Christian, and that's not just he's going to get you if you do a bad job, that's a sense of motivation as if Jesus is there watching you, supervising what you do, and you're making widgets or houses or uh, whatever it is that you make, whatever it is that you do, you're doing that ultimately for him because he's your master. He is your Lord. Colossians chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, nail this down a little bit more clearly, more directly. Paul says there, it is the Lord Christ who you are serving so that when you do whatever it is you do, you are working for Christ. And so this is tremendous motivation. It means that our real paycheck, in a sense, will not be here on earth. It will be as we're rewarded in heaven. This means that when we do our homework, when we talk to customers, when we fill out bids, when we do reports, when we change dirty diapers or whatever it is you do in your work, that we do that unto Christ. And that is our motivation. And the good news is that sometimes in our work, We don't receive compensation like we should. We don't receive recognition like we should. We don't get credit sometimes. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been on a job, maybe in school or at work, and and you did something, and it was a, a good job, and maybe somebody else took the credit for it? Maybe it went unnoticed. Maybe your boss didn't say a word, but you knew that it was a spectacular job. Maybe you go day after day, hour after hour, doing your job well, And nobody really seems to care about it. Nobody seems to pat you on the back. Nobody seems to care that you make widgets all day long. Jesus cares. Jesus notices. And what this text says is that one day there will be an eternal paycheck, an an eternal reward waiting for you. So keep doing a good job. Keep making your widgets even if nobody notices. Keep working diligently because payday is not today. It's In the future, is what he says. So be encouraged. We work for Christ. 
So what have we seen? We've seen that Jesus redeems work. He does so, first of all, by redeeming us as workers. He causes us to be back in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And once we're born again, Jesus goes about changing how we work. This is a work in progress. I think all of these five attitudes in which Jesus wants to to, to bring about in our work, we're not perfect at them, but we're being perfected and we're growing in them. He redeems the worker and then he redeems our work. So I want to close with a story. I think it epitomizes the truths that we've seen today in a book called Today's Good Word. An author by the name of Ethel Sutton tells the story. And she tells the story of a young British soldier who was blinded in battle. He could not see. And I'll finish reading in her words. She said he was a trained musician. So after he recovered from his injury at war, he spent much of his time playing the piano for the wounded who had been sent to a local London hospital. He sometimes, oftentimes, wondered, was anyone, was anybody paying attention to his music? Because he often heard the trampling of feet through the corridors as visitors came and went. But he never got distracted. He never let that bother him. He, in her words, always put his best effort into playing, hoping, praying, that his music would encourage and comfort those who were dealing with the agony of injury. One day, she says, when he paused to rest, he heard somebody nearby heartily clapping for what he had done. So he turned his sightless eyes in the direction of the clapping and he was asked a question with a smile, who are you? He asked, who are you? To the one who is clapping to him. And the one who was clapping replied, I am your king. For it was the British monarch, the king of England, who had been visiting the wounded to cheer the soldiers who had been injured in battle in their kingdom and to strengthen their morale. And she closes the story by saying this, without realizing it, without realizing it, the young man had been using his talent to entertain royalty. May we not be blind to that reality. May we not be blind to the reality that when we do our work, we do it always before our king. We do it always before our king. And because we do, we may, regardless of the recognition, we may do our jobs. We may respect our authorities. We may care about our work. We may work hard always. And we may, as this young man was, working for his king. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not limited to that which we consider spiritual, but in every area of our life, in our marriages, in our work, in our relationships with church, in our morals, Jesus, you are sovereign over all, and you want to be the Lord over all that we are and over every area of our life, including our work. We rejoice in recognizing that you, when you save us through your grace, not not for anything that we could do. When you save us, you have a life of good works set out before us that we may walk in them, and that includes the good work that we're gonna do as we go to work tomorrow. And so help us. Help us to be transformed 
into the workers that you have redeemed. Help us to do our jobs. Help us to submit to authority. Help us to respect that authority. Help us to care about the very work we do and the people that we will influence. Help us to work when no one is watching, knowing that you are always watching, and to know that whatever we do, we do it for you as our king. We ask it in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and God's people said, amen. Let's do this. I'm going to stand and I'm going to read a scripture over us as we go. So let's stand together. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as a blessing. Paul says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, and that includes what we do tomorrow, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We'll see you next week. Thanks.